Dennis Prager here. If you have a business or real estate dispute, I strongly recommend that you call Barack Lurie. Barack, you recently handled a case where one brother was suing his two brothers, your clients. What happened? Well, Dennis, the two brothers struggled but succeeded to build three restaurants. But when the third brother returned from being out of the country for 20 years, he sued to get one-third of their business. He claimed an oral deal between them because he had once worked as a cook for them. So what did you do? Well, during trial, we got him to acknowledge certain key dates and to his complete lack of documentation. So when his side rested, we asked the court for what's called a directed verdict, a motion that gets rid of a case after fatal facts come out during trial. And the court agreed, shooting down all but one of the brothers' causes of action. And we settled that one for a very small amount and excused the jury. And justice was done. My friends, you know that I trust Barack Lurie with my own business and other legalities. So to make sure a deal is done right, call him for your own legal issues at 866-575-8111. That's 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right, Barack Lurie at Lurie and Park, 866-575-8111. is the Brock Lurie Podcast with me, as always, my good friend and producer, Ari David. Always a pleasure. Ari, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for uh, telling me about your great San Francisco trip, and I had a good weekend as well. Good time with the family. That's so important. Um, you know, what's so interesting, I, I went this Saturday to celebrate the Republican victory in the midterms with my children. This is something I do um, with my kids. I encourage them to be involved in politics, and I say to them, listen, if, we, if, if the Republicans win in a good way, and, and, and for winning, I said, if 51 or more Senate seats, then uh, we'll go to Knott's Berry Farm. And boy, don't you know, they were watching the results. <laughs> and as we got more and more seats, they got closer and closer. They were so excited about it. And it was the good guys, the people who love freedom and the people who don't love freedom. That's the way I make the distinction. And uh, my liberal friends out there, they can hoop and holler all they want, and they can say, what are you talking about? Liberals don't—we love freedom. Of course we do. No, you don't. No, you really don't. Um, You love your own freedom, and you love it when you get to make your own speech and make your own dictates and such. But when other people want to uh, present their ideas and, and ideology, well, then that's not acceptable. Uh, it's just like uh, Obama said in his uh, post-election speech. Um, there is this, uh, this line he said, I'm willing to listen so long as I like what, what, I, what I hear, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it, he said words to that effect. It's not an exact quote. But it was so palpably clear, the transparency of, of how he uh, really viewed his own presidency, that he gets to say that he's uh, engaging so long as uh, you give him something that he's willing to listen to. He truly thinks he's the king. But I digress. The, the point is that I think that uh, liberals, whether they realize it or not, are actually advocating for a diminishment of freedom, whereas we conservatives are advocating for an increase in freedom. What are you talking about, Barack and Ari? Are you crazy? I, you guys want to make all sorts of rules on gay marriage, and you want to set the clock back to the old days of the 50s, and, and you want to make... Uh, you know, you, you want everyone to stand up for a woman and to, uh, to shake uh, hands and calling everyone mister. You seem very restrictive, sir, 
very restrictive. And you uh, and we, we liberals want everything open. We want uh, t teachers to be called by their first names, and we, you know, we we want uh, sex to be open, and and we want to liberalize drugs. How can you say that we're not for as much freedom as you are? And the answer to that is you're really conflating two very different things, my friend. We're for structure from a morality point of view. We, but you guys are for structure and imposing an entirely different way of operating in our civilization. You want to throw out um, so many of the market capitalism that has worked in the past. You want, you want freedom when it comes to sex and drugs. You want freedom in the sense that nobody seems to have a distinction between anybody else and, and themselves. So in other words, no dif difference between men and women, no difference between teacher and student, no difference between parent and child, but that you're very willing to be open and liberal about, to use that phrase, but you're, you're not liberal when it comes to the market, and that is the big distinction between the two of us, isn't it? And, of course, we also have a sense of God. That's a very big distinction. So uh, that, that's one of the things that I, I will definitely say that, that when, when it comes to um, the double speak of the liberal agenda, just look at the colleges, look at the, the speech codes, and they, they're unabashed about it. They call it speech codes. They're not liberal. They're not, they're, they're not for freedom, not, not liberal in the sense that they're for freedom. They're against freedom. They, they're, they're for speech so long as you say speech that's acceptable to them, right? I mean, but what makes that different from speech in North Korea, right? I mean, if you say that you're for Kim Jong-un or Un, whatever you, however you pronounce his name, if you say you're for him and, and you, you want to show a, po a poster of how much you love him, well, then I, I suppose he's for that speech. Then he's all for, for free speech, right? But if you show him and, and put an equal sign next to Adolf Hitler, he'll uh, perhaps not like your free speech, right? But what's, so what's the difference, my friends? In... in I mean, I suppose the schools can't uh, put you in jail, but they can't expel you. They can decide to suspend you. They can do a lot of things to you. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're marginalized and you can't graduate and you can't go to another school. And that's, that's not freedom, my friends. Not, not by a long shot. All right. I want to talk about um, what has happened with the midterms and what now for President Barack Obama. And this is not just stuff like, uh, you know, will he pass immigration reform and will he build a fence and will he uh, uh, do the Keystone Pipeline and such, all of which are very important topics. And, and to answer uh, that very generally speaking, yes, the, the Republicans both now in the Senate and the House should be forcing bills that now to, would be put on the president's desk and say, here you go, here's a bill, sign it. And if he doesn't sign it, well, then he can say why he didn't sign it. And politically speaking, it'll inure to the, the, the Republicans' benefit, I believe, greatly. And it'll hurt Obama, and consequently, it'll hurt the next presidential candidate. But I'm thinking more in a, in a big-picture sort of way, his tone, his, his everything about it. Um, remember we talked before, Ari, about the, the one thing that we were able to figure out about um, Obama— very quickly after he became president, two months after he became president, he visited the Queen of England. And remember what he gave her as a... Yeah, his own speeches. His own speeches in an iPod. 
right, with, <laughs> with the earbuds, right? So, and we, we kind of laughed about what did Obama expect? What, what in his vision did he expect? He, he, did he really see the Queen of England sitting down on her Tough sofa? Thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and putting on earbuds to listen to the great Barack Obama speak and to hear his majestic words. Is that what he expected? Did he really think that that would, that would happen? Did it ever entertain his mind for a moment that she might think, are you kidding? I'm, you give, you're giving me an iPod with your speeches? Why not give me a bust of you, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Barack Obama? I mean, it's, it's almost as insane as that. In fact, it is more insane now that I think about it. Uh, it's hardly the classic gift that you would expect from one leader of the world to royalty in, in another country. So it, it was emblematic of something. It, it told us a lot of information about him. And I think it told us about 80% of what we need to know about Obama. We know from that incident alone that he is self-centered at best and a complete narcissist, more likely. And a terrible holiday shopper. <laughs> That's right. Clearly a last-minute uh, shopper. I don't know. Order it online on Amazon and give it as a gift. You know? and, but, but, but that's the point. We know so much about him at this point, at least on that level. Then we found out other things about him. Going back to the gifts, for example, it turns out when the English ambassador came to the White House, I think this was within, again, the first two months of his presidency, he um, had somebody give a church, the church of Winston Churchill that they had given the White House as a gift, a bust, a bust of, yeah, uh, a bust of Winston Churchill uh, a couple of administrations ago, which was still in the White House. And they said, here you go, you can take it back. And the ambassador correctly, I think, said, uh, Mr. President, are you sure? I, you could put it anywhere else in the White House if you don't want it in the West Wing or in the Oval Office. Put it somewhere uh, where, you know, you don't have to see it every day if you don't like it. I don't understand why, but there you go. No, no, take it. Take it back. We don't want it anywhere in the White House. That's what they said. Okay, now, what does that reveal to you? This is very clear that he wants to send a message. He wanted to send a message to England that he despises them, that he has no respect for Winston Churchill that Winston Churchill is a figure of contempt for him. Uh, for him, it's as if you were to put a, uh, a bust of uh, not necessarily Adolf Hitler, but Che Guevara in my house. If you put a, 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 a bust of Che Guevara in my house, I would say, get it out. Get out this piece of turd from my house. Okay? I, I don't know why you think I would like it. Bye. Go. But this is the way he feels about Winston Churchill. And it revealed much more than he should have revealed. All right. Then, of course, uh, his famous trip throughout uh, the Middle East, where, and, and this was his first trip, do you remember, where he made his apology tour, and he went to Cairo, and he gave the famous apo first apology speech, and he spoke similarly among other nations around the Arab world. And you and I took note that he did not even stop by for an hour in Israel. Not one. That was intentional, my friends. You know, things are, things are uh, seen 
in many different ways, what you do and what you don't do. And his advisors tell him, sir, if you don't go to Israel, this is the impression it will leave. And Obama said, I don't care. Okay? So he was sending a signal to Israel as well. These are the many things we were able to uncover about him. We also know that he's very stubborn because he never gave in to almost anything. Whether, and, and, and then, of course, uh, with um, Gitmo, we knew, we knew that he was not willing to actually close Gitmo. Okay, so, uh, sorry, he was willing to, he wanted to close Gitmo, but he just can't do it, right? So now it's an, he's got egg on his face about that. He jumps the gun ahead of time and makes these bold propositions, and then he has to backtrack from them. This we've seen time and time again, whether it's uh, Professor Gates, um, Trayvon Martin, or William Brown, um, or just about anything else that he ever uh, commented on from a social point of view. He's always had to backtrack. Okay, so you're with me so far. All right. Now, one thing we now know about him is that he believes, and I, and I know that uh, many pundits have referred to him as thinking that he's got an imperial presidency. You know, those are, uh, that's a phrase that I think does accurately describe him, but I think it, unfortunately, uh, it sounds too caustic, um, so liberals are, are able to dismiss it. But I'm going to use a different phrase. I'm going to say that he doesn't understand what the presidency means. He thinks he gets to be the ruler, not king, not at a, an imperialist, he thinks he gets to be the ruler. He gets to say things. And he's forgotten how the system works. Despite him being a constitutional scholar, supposedly, he just doesn't seem to know what the rules are. And it's, uh, it's, it's like a, an army that doesn't realize that it's lost you know, three-quarters of its men, and it's lost all of its tanks, and it has only one more airplane left. And it's now confronting a major army, and they still perceive themselves to be the major army they used to be. That's the way he feels about his power. Okay? So, and, and every midterm election that has since happened, he's lost more and more of his power. 2010 was a terrible shellacking, to use his own phrase. 2012, he lost a little bit more. And then, of course, just now, 2014, uh, it was the drubbing of the century. Literally, I mean, it was, it was, there has been no worse drubbing in a midterm since, I think, the 40s. And, uh, and his inability to accept that is itself a telltale sign. And he still talks to us as though to say, I'm still in charge. Make no mistake. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I want to do. And, um, and I'll listen to you, but you better give me things that I'm interested in listening to, right? This is his whole tone, forgetting that he just doesn't have the army anymore. And we, we almost can be, we Republicans can almost be in the position if the uh, um, uh, McConnell and, of course, John Boehner, forget about them per se, but the, the leadership of the Republicans can simply say, uh, yeah, you know what, Mr. President, blah, blah, blah. They, they could do things without him now. Certainly they can do the budget, for example, without him. They can do a lot of things without him. 
And uh, they could basically tell them, look, uh, here you go, Mr. President, here's the bill. And if you don't like it, we may very well override you. That's right, with some of your own Democrats joining us in the override. That's right. So watch out, Mr. President. And he's got very little power. So um, as my father used to call it when he referred to Jimmy Carter, he was a political cartoonist. He did a great cartoon once about Jimmy Carter and uh, throughout his presidency, he's, you could see one frame at a time, um, Carter was getting smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that he was a tiny ant at the end dealing with very big people and he was trying to say things. And my, the caption of the uh, cartoon was the incredible shrinking presidency. And that's what it is with Obama. It is the incredible shrinking presidency. And yet he still thinks he's got the power. <laughs> Somebody's got to advise him. You don't have the power, sir. It's just not what it used to be back like it was in 2008, uh, 2009, rather. You just, it's just not the same. You can't pass anything. Well, I want net neutrality. I want minimum wage. Get those things happening. And his advisors have to come to him and say, sir, it's, it's just not going to happen. You don't have the votes. And he says, well, find a way. Make it. Do it. Sir, I, I, we can't do it. You're fired. Get me somebody else. This, this is the kind of the mentality that we have now in the White House. It's, it's like the dictatorships of, uh, of the, the old Europe, where if you said anything that was contrary to what, the, uh, what uh, the great dictator wanted, well, then you're out. You're out on your ass. I mean, in many ways, he reminds me, again, of The Simpsons with Montgomery Burns. You know? And he, he's shocked, shocked that things have changed on him financially. And he says, you know, get, get information from me, please. I, I, you know, I, I, want, I want the stock uh, information. Find me how my stocks are doing. I'm sure they're doing well. And he, he reveals that he's invested in all these stocks that don't exist anymore, right? And he has no idea that the, the president has caught up to him. That's, what, that's what's so amusing about this. Now, Ray, I'm going to ask you about net, to, net neutrality in a moment and um, your take on it, because um, this is the latest thing that he's thrown out there. But, and I bring it up not to talk necessarily about net neutrality, but to, to bring it up as an example of why this man has no connection with reality anymore. And he has now become a, um, a cautionary tale for all presidents for the future to know how not to act like. But this is what happens when you have no uh, sense of reality anymore, when you don't bother to actually see what the opposition is doing, to understand what the country really wants, and to think that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread. This is what happens. And uh, his previous efforts to increase the minimum wage, that went nowhere, right? His previous efforts to uh, create equal pay under uh, the Lilly Ledbetter law and to, to force a new rule to that effect, that's gone nowhere. And now this new thing, net neutrality. All right, why don't you tell me what net neutrality means? Because I'm not so clear about it myself. Um, let's bottom line it. What it means is the, uh, the liberals, the uh, GOP establishment, the, the people who run our country, the elite, don't like losing control of, of a media that they have had bias in their favor for generations. All right. And they see this new media coming on, internet-based media, 
and they want to seek, and remember, the words net neutrality have nothing to do with reality. Right, like, like the Fairness Doctrine or didn't have anything. the Affordable Care Act or yeah. any other right. number of wonderful sounding laws. Right. Social security. Right. Something secure <laughs> about social security. Right. So it's really a way of getting, allowing the government to regulate internet packets of data going from one place to another so that websites like, say, Breitbart or Drudge can be regulated. Yeah, I, that, that's that was... What, that's what it's really for. Right, so basically, um, I think we, when we talked about this offline, you basically described it as a, uh, a highway, so to speak, and that, we, hey, you know, we get to regulate these highways, and uh, nobody should have more access and more speed than others, and everything should be uh, neutral from an um, Internet point of view. And there's one other aspect. Th that's that's the, the, the facile way that they will present it, we know that there's something more to it, and why would they fight so hard for it? Right, and with one other little addition to it, which is this. You and I would absolutely agree, even though we haven't discussed this, that Internet access is in no way a public utility like water or electricity or phone service. Agreed. Because phone service, water, and electricity, without them, uh, or with monopolistic practices by those who control those access points into your homes or businesses, can keep you from being able to dial 911, can keep you from turning the lights on and you know, killing yourself with water or electricity or something if you are in need of it. Internet access will not uh, save your life. And uh, just, so just to put it very quickly, they're trying to reclassify internet access as a public utility. Yeah. Is well, so that they can then have the rationale. And, and, and where, why stop there? I mean, why not say that all iPads should be considered a utility because we're all using iPads? And, uh, and forget about the Internet connection associated with the iPads. I'm simply saying, well, why not control everything on the grounds that it's a utility? Why not control the, uh, the auto car manufacturers on the grounds that they're a utility? Because we all use cars one way or the other. Why not uh, control all transportation, generally well, speaking, I'll, as a utility? I'll, I'll do even one better, because they've tried this before, and they're still working on this. Yeah. They're trying to regulate carbon dioxide. They're trying to regulate the gas that you exhale after you breathe in oxygen. Sure. Whether they call it as a utility or otherwise, it's, it's, it's absurd is the point. Right. And, uh, and why now, of course? The reason why now is because, and this is getting back to Obama and who he is as a president, uh, it's it's all about control, you know. He just got smacked down really hard in the in the midterms, after he himself said, "Make no mistake, this election is about my policies, even though I'm not on the ballot." Right, and then <laughs> when he gets slaughtered on this, he he says, "This wasn't about me. This is, in fact, uh, most people would have voted for this. this is had, had they had they not, yeah, had they not stayed home, the two thirds not stayed home, we would have we would have you know won incredibly." Putting aside the fact that you could make this argument day in and day out for every other election in history, but for some reason in 2014, this was an exception. Boy, I'd love to, to make that argument in 2012. Guess what? Some, you know, an unfortunately high um, amount of evangelicals decided to stay home, and uh, we lost. Do we get to, does Romney get to say, hey, I would have won? I'm, I'm the president because, just because you know, those people didn't vote for me, but uh, I'm really the president, sir. Yeah, there is another reason the timing is kind of rich at this moment, because this is the moment that bundled cable is about to fall apart. Yeah. In the reason media bias is allowed to exist is because entities like CNN and MSNBC stay on the air even um. though no one watches them. Once the cable bundling system falls apart because of on-demand 
and streaming and goes to an a la carte system. And people like you and I, when we order our cable, leave those channels off the ordering, no longer will subscriber fees fuel their, their income stream. Thus, they will have to derive revenue from advertising. Yeah. Thus, they will have to provide a less biased, left-wing indoctrinational product. And so this moment is very important in the, in the uh, if you will, the river's delta of, of entertainment, infotainment, news media, and politics. But because the elitists who have controlled this conglomerate delta for, again, 56 years are about to lose it. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I, I believe that. I do agree with you that the cable system is now collapsing um, for all the reasons that you just mentioned. And it is a great way, this net neutrality uh, concept, to prop up uh, the old loyal faithfuls, CNN, MSNBC, and otherwise, uh, and all the other garbage uh, stations like PBS and all the nonsense uh, that you see there. The, the, the last thing they want is competition. You know, that as, my, as my friend uh, said, that the, the businesses, big businesses love Democrats. They love they love, regulations. they love regulations, but because Democrats love regulations, they love regulations, because uh, he says, you know, um, the last thing they want is is competition. Somebody might get hurt, <laughs> and I, I just thought it was such a clever, and, and it's such a brilliant, succinct way of of portraying the reality of what Democrats really want, and it's even more brilliant on their part, the Democrats, that they get to say that that big business is conservative somehow, as if they want this hustle of, of um, conservative, of, of uh, the free market. You know how difficult it is to compete in the marketplace? Very, right? I mean, I, I, would, I would love if there was a special law, I think it would be terrible for America, but let's, let's just say from my standpoint, a special law that said that uh, the law offices of Learning Associates uh, gets the first, right of first refusal for every litigation matter uh, involving any real estate or business dispute uh, a greater than, you know, worth more than $500,000 in dispute. That would be a great <laughs> law for me, right? I have a better one for you. All right, go ahead. I have a better ahead. one for you. A law that says the same way you have to have auto insurance and now you have health insurance, you have to have a lawyer. On staff, you have to. No citizen, because of their own safety, because they might get sued, can go around without no, but, having a lawyer on permanent retainer. Right. That that that's an interesting thing. Right. Well, no, but 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 that's not that's not what I want, when I even know what I'm saying, Ari. I'm saying something more unique to me. I'm saying it, you have to go to Barack Lurie only. Right. He right? gets the chance to turn down your lawsuit yeah. before you. I get that, and then I get to. That would be a great. I would be rich forever that way, yeah. right? But also because of forced subscriber fees. I didn't say the second part. Right. Only Barack Lurie is considered a real lawyer. Right. Okay. So everyone has to hire yeah. you. They define me as the lawyer. Yeah. Uh, and and that is you know that that's of course I would love that. It would be terrible for the country, but I would like it. Right. And that's what that's the way it works in business. Of course. That's why the bigger the companies, they they love uh, Democrats ruling because it, they get to wheel and deal with them, and they get to pretend with them that they're absolutely essential, that they're helping save the society. Uh, for example, Pan Am, the famous uh, um, part seen in the movie uh, Aviator, I think it was, where Pan Am is negotiating with the government and saying, hey, you need us to be America's airline. We need to be the exclusive airline. Otherwise, there'll be too many uh, competitors out there and we'll all be cutting uh, costs and such and you'll have unsafe planes that will be falling from the sky and everyone's going to die, right? 
That's what they actually said. They actually pitched that. And the American government actually considered it. Fortunately, they, they shot that down, so to speak. That's what they did. And you have to, people will always tell you as they're stealing money from you that it's good for you, <laughs> for, you for, for, uh, for, for them to let you steal their money. That's, they'll, they'll tell you that day in and day out. Oh, you totally need us. I get emails, and, and all of our listeners get emails all day long, right, from people who are telling uh, the businesses, you need search engine optimization. You need um, uh, security in your um, finances. Uh, and you better sign up with us or you're going to lose everything. Uh, and then there are the health products, of course. If you don't eat this particular um, you know, extract from, from Indonesia, uh, you're not going to be healthy. And it goes on and on with all the things that you could be killing yourself with, right, financially or health-wise. But that's what, that's what the Democrats play very well. They're really good at that. And so and they start off by phrases like net neutrality, which is itself, they use the word neutral to suggest fairness. And then, of course, as we said just a little while ago, they employ the fairness doctrine, right? And this is the notion that for every conservative hour on the TV, they're going to have to have some liberal, a balanced, a balanced yeah. perspective. And then, of course, who decides what's liberal and what's conservative is going to be an interesting take. Yeah, and then what you wind up with is radio stations, none of which ever talk about politics. Right. All they talk about is uh, sports, uh, if you remember the old days on radio, yeah, yeah. Him, uh, psychotherapy, you know, well, this got tight. But there's a place that where this already happens. It's called Europe. Okay. And, and, I, and I lived in Europe for a long time. And I was really quite stunned by how little uh, political messaging there was in, on the radio. Just really, it's virtually nil. They have to go on the internet to listen to Dennis Prager or Rush Limbaugh or otherwise, or their liberal friends uh, for that matter, because they've came to come to the same conclusion because it's so regulated over there. On the radio, you're not allowed to, to say things political unless you have it completely balanced out. So it's exactly the point that you just made. They end up talking about garbage. They, you know, some, some of it's interesting. They actually play music. They talk about sports, which is fine. And then other stuff like what I call NPR talk, uh, which just bores you out of your mind uh, if, they're, if they're not speaking about uh, Palestinian rights and how horrible the Israelis are. That's, that's what you get. So look, now, now going back, and I want to go full circle on this, this is really about Obama. And I, and I want to present him now as a case study. In business school, we would have case studies. We would talk about why Apple, for example, became the company that it did. What were the great moves that it took? And what were its pitfalls and such like that? Why did IBM lose its, its, its gigantic status? You don't hear about IBM anymore. Um, why is Microsoft kind of stalemating, stagnating right now, right? Uh, we, we learned about Honeywell. We learned about Pepsi. We learned about all different companies, their, their rises and falls, and the big mistakes that they made. And you can always learn from other people's mistakes. And why not look at President Obama and ask what, as if, as if it was 10 years from now, and now we study him as the disaster of the presidency that he will no doubt be remembered for. A disaster. And we'll come to the conclusion that this was a man who simply failed to see anything other than what he wanted to see. He had blinders on from the very beginning. He saw the world only in terms of 
socialism, in terms of pan-Arabism. Uh, he, he was hostile to Christianity, and he was lazy. All those things. And now we're at the point where all these things are coming to roost, to use his good friend Reverend Wright's own phrase. And uh, we, we, we cannot see him any other way now. We, we, his, his nakedness is right there. He's arrogant. Uh, he's defiant. And he's going to take the whole country down with him if he has to. That's the, that's the approach that he takes. And I, I don't know about you, Ari. And I'm going to say something slightly off kilter here, but then maybe come back. But it seems to be the first time in my life as an American that I'm, I feel like I, I need to be cautious about what I say politically. You know, I, nobody's arrested me, and I don't expect to be arrested, but maybe I'm, I'm not that much of a celebrity, right? I'm not, uh, what's his name, Dinesh D'Souza. But if, you, if you're big enough and you say something that they really want to grab onto, they'll take you down, and they might incarcerate you. And I think it's the first time in my life that I actually start worrying about that. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm being paranoid. I don't think I am. Um, some of the crazy things that have been going, the selective enforcement that's been going on, um, the IRS scandal is such a good example, right? Dinesh D'Souza is a good example. I, I don't think I'm that off, uh, out of line. The good news is, of course, is that both you and I believe that government is naturally incompetent. And they can't keep track of all these things. I'm not so worried about a conspiratorial effort to, to get every Republican or every conservative who says something negative. They simply can't do it. It's impossible. But they would like to. And that's what I'm concerned about. And I think that's in Obama himself. Now, another great result of the 2014 election is that um, he could be stopped. Uh, he can, it really can only do so much. Now, he, you know, notwithstanding whether he realizes it or not, and he doesn't realize it. He thinks that he's the president. I'm still in charge here, and uh, I, I need to remind you of that. And he's going to re be reminding us of that for the next two years. I'm the president. I'm the president. Don't speak to me like that. He even snapped at Joe Biden the other day in a conference. Do you hear about this? Anyway, I, um, I'm, I'm worried about uh, what this man thinks he can do. Uh, he will be doing issuing executive orders and seeing what will take. And he, he's going he's gonna to have advisors who, who are going to tell him that what he's doing is legal, that it's constitutional, but none of it will be. And here's the problem, Ari. From a procedural point of view, he can say, F it. I know this executive order will eventually be overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States, but guess what? That'll take two years. And by the time that the Supreme Court actually hears the decision, I'm already no longer president. In the meantime, I can, I can do a lot of damage. So expect a lot of executive orders in the, in the future from a very stubborn, very arrogant, very emperor-loving man. Well, no, I shouldn't say emperor-loving man. He, he's a man... How about self-loving? Self, yeah, he's a self-loving man. That's exactly right who wants to uh, parade his power around. This, and, and this is exactly why we have the Constitution, exactly the way we have it, to stop exactly this man. Okay? 
No other man as president has ever acted the way he did, other than maybe Franklin Roosevelt, try to pack the Supreme Court and such. This is the first time that I've seen anything like that that I know about in my American history. And this is why we have our Constitution to stop his bold plans that he thinks is better than anything that the Senate or the House can ever pass. My friends, this is Barack Lurie. This has been the Barack Lurie Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you real soon. Carries us out